You're listening to Season 6 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, we analyze all 43 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 6.7. You must gather your party before venturing forth. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and mainly I'm a multi-class bard, warlock, podcaster, elf, but I also took a level of water buffalo for the innate bonus to armor class. And I'm Nina, new to this run of SD Gundam and wondering, could I be the prophesied podcaster? I don't remember anything before I woke up in this recording booth. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 612 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters, Nikolai H., One Above All, and Goosey Gamer. MSB is entirely listener-supported. If you would like to hear us reach the Gundam of the 2000s, 2010s, and beyond, become a monthly subscriber today at GundamPodcast.com Patreon. This week, after months of 3 to 13 minute shorts, we are going to find out whether SD Gundam can carry a full half hour length episode as we dive into the first of SD Gundam Gaiden, Rakuroa no Yusha, also known as the Lacroan Hero. Initially released in late March 1990, Lacroan Hero is the first of four interconnected full length episodes under the SD Gundam Gaiden label. Gaiden, which combines the kanji for outside and legend, means something like spin-off or side story. So this is a spin-off from SD Gundam, which of course was already a spin-off from the larger Gundam series, so we are in nested Matroshka doll of spin-offs territory now. The SD Gundam Gaiden or Night Gundam setting had already debuted back in 1988, alongside a handful of other SD spin-offs all with their own tenuously linked story settings. But I will talk more about that in the research. As has been the case for most of SD Gundam, the chief director overseeing the project was Amino Tetsuro, who also wrote the screenplay. The unit or sub-director was Takamatsu Shinji. Ikeda Shigemi returned as art director, and Yokoyama Akitoshi returned as character designer and animation director. He was first mentioned on episode 6.5 because he worked with Amino and Takamatsu on the SD Sengokuden parts of SD Gundam Mark III. Two others, Yokoi Koji and Hiyama Tomoyuki, are credited as conceptual character designers, so it seems likely that Yokoyama's job as character designer was mainly to adapt existing manga-style illustrations into something more suitable for animation. The music was by Okada Toru. And now, Nina's recap. In 
In the kingdom of Lacroa, Princess Fra's walk along the lakeshore is interrupted when Xeon monsters emerge from hiding to menace her. She tries to run, but there are too many of them and no clear escape, when without warning, a thrown sword flashes past, followed by the Night Gundam. He chases the monsters away, and although he's a stranger in these lands, with no memory of his past or who he is besides the name, the princess invites him back to the castle. It seems the attack on the princess was part of something bigger. Outside the castle gates, the ground is covered in wounded townsfolk and knights. The knight Amuro explains that the monsters of Xeon attacked without warning, and there wasn't enough time to get everyone to safety. And the one who commands the horde of Xeon monsters? Demon King Satan Gundam. But wait, Gundam is also the name of the Mystery Knight. Are they connected somehow? Collecting more of Lacroix's strongest defenders, they go to the king for answers. It seems there is a prophecy that a hero named Gundam will save Lacroix. But what does it mean that there are two Gundams? No one can say for certain. But the threat of Satan Gundam and his army of monsters looms over the kingdom like a shadow, and he must be defeated. The king and the cleric Guntank take a fractured stone tablet from its hiding place under the throne. If the adventurers can find the rest of the tablet, its magic should help them defeat Satan Gundam. The two knights, Gundam and Amuro, with the cleric Guntank and the barbarian Gun Cannon, aren't far from the castle when they encounter their first obstacle. A masked knight on a white horse barrels through them, knocking them down like bowling pins, and steals the tablet! They try to give chase but are attacked by more Xeon monsters, and the mystery horseman, known only as Shar, gets away. Meanwhile, the gun tank is in serious peril, but is rescued in the nick of time by the skilled marksmanship of the elf Jim Sniper Custom, swinging in on a vine while shooting his crossbow. The monsters turn tail, and our adventurers regroup. That's Shar. What does he want the tablet for? Is he an ally or an enemy? He is neither, says the gun tank, only dangerous. As for where to go next, the elf Jim knows a dungeon nearby that is said to hold a magical stone tablet. It could be the piece they're missing. The dungeon itself is more of a cave, a dense tangle of tunnels and vaulted chambers. Almost as soon as they step inside, animate slimes seep from every side passage. First slowly, then faster and more, like a tide, the slimes sweep up the adventurers, splitting them into two groups when the passage forks. One group lands at a dead end and is gradually buried as slimes fill the chamber. The other group struggles to fend off attacks from Gira Dogas, who drop from the ceiling. One slime, smaller and paler blue than the others, creeps into the dead-end cave, takes Amuro by the hand, and leads his group out of the dungeon. More surprising still, this slime carries the missing piece of the stone tablet. Before the adventurers can get over their surprise, Xeon monsters attack again, and masked knight Shar arrives to chase them away and to try to snatch that last tablet piece. He has ambitions! With the magic of the tablet, he will defeat Satan Gundam and rule the world! This monologue is interrupted when the ground rumbles and shakes, and a veritable geyser of slimes shoots up from the earth, carrying the other group of adventurers with it. The little blue slime snatches the tablet piece from Shar as they are all carried away, 
and Amaro's Pegasus flies in to pull the adventurers from the rapid flow of slimes. On solid ground once more, the slime tries to go with the group, but they insist it's too dangerous. And besides, they can't do anything with just the small piece of tablet. Char still has the rest of it. Their journey takes them across gray stony barrens until they reach the Demon King's castle. Storming the gates, they run headlong into one of the enemy defenders. One by one, adventurers stay behind to fight Zeon's warriors and monsters, until at last, the Knight Gundam and Cleric Guntank make it to the central chamber. Satan Gundam shoots a ray of magical energy at the Cleric, knocking him backwards off a parapet. With a shout, Knight Gundam charges, and sword to staff, they struggle to gain the upper hand. A red aura comes off of them in waves and lightning crackles all around. The adventurer's energies are flagging, and all appears lost when the little slime appears. It bites and distracts Satan Gundam, giving Night Gundam an opening, but it's not enough. Char arrives and repairs the magical tablet, but it burns his hands, refusing to be used by anyone but the chosen hero. Of its own accord, it floats up into the air and over to Night Gundam. He speaks the magic words and is transformed, his shield, helm, and sword all changing under the influence of the spell. With a thrust, the now magical flaming sword stabs into and shatters the gem at Satan Gundam's forehead, and the enemy falls. Their little slime friend flashes rainbow colors and then transforms. It was Sayla all along, Char's missing sister. She and Char go back through the castle, helping the adventurers still locked in battle then returning to the main chamber. To their horror, Satan Gundam rises up again, transforming into an even more dangerous form. Night Gundam must call on the magical tablet and ancient relics once more. This time, when the two Gundams clash, they seem enveloped in clear blue flame. The castle begins to crumble to pieces, those pieces floating through the air, and most of the adventurers are flung backwards across the stony plain. The ground cracks open, lava flows and sprays, where the castle was is now a volcano, and when Night Gundam defeats Satan Gundam again, that volcano erupts. The showers and flows of lava are soon replaced by ash, falling like snow. Somehow Night Gundam survives, and rejoins his fellow adventurers, all of them now certain that he is the prophesied hero. But what will they find when they return to the castle? What threats still loom over the kingdom of LaCroix? From what little I know about Gundam spin-offs, in particular manga, Kaecilia as an office lady, and everybody is a dog, and... <laughs> Haven't you seen Chihuahua Garma? I have seen Chihuahua Garma. There's so much of it. <laughs> Point being, if you have the context of all of these weird spin-offs, it is not at all surprising that they would do a high fantasy Gundam. No, no. I mean, this is really just an evolved version of the Gundam Densetsu that they did a short of uh what I guess now is about a year ago, but in our timeline is just a couple of weeks past. In terms of how they take Gundam and make it high fantasy, a lot of it is just a matter of changing character costumes, especially for the people. Though I have to say, 
On my second watch through, I realized they made a point of keeping Frabo's little yellow neckerchief. And <laughs> I love it. It's great. I love that they said, okay, we can put her in a princess gown, but she has to have the neckerchief. Uh, yeah, you have to, you know, you have to maintain certain character aspects in order to uh, have a sense of continuity. We see that character and we know immediately that that is Frabo. Now, I don't think that the neckerchief is an essential part of that, but they clearly did. I also noticed uh, the the priest gun tank has been given a cravat or neckerchief as well as part of his outfit. He looks more like Dracula. <laughs> He's wearing a cape that has priest the Dracula. that has the very stand up collar mm-hmm, around it, mm-hmm. plus the sort of cravat looking thing with a brooch on the front of it. And the gun cannon has been given a horned sort of quote, barbarian helmet uh, to make him warrior gun cannon. There's a mix on the enemy side between mobile suits that are made to look a little more monstrous but are still recognizably mobile suits and just straight up regular monsters. A lot of them, they give them ears, mouths, teeth, (laughs) toes, claws. The Zissa one is particularly horrifying. It's covered in mouths. Yes, every missile launcher has been turned into a mouth with fangs in. Including the one at the crotch. Yeah, um, I don't think the original Zissa had a missile launcher (laughs) down there. But then the Zuccarello's appearance, it's just a yellow slug monster. (laughs) It doesn't look anything like a mobile suit. I'm glad you also spotted the Zuccarello slug. It's it's only there for a second. Gotta look for the Zuccarello. Uh, So I have to share with you a little tidbit from my research into the sort of manga universe that surrounds all of this. You'll notice there's a family of gyms that appears briefly in this being terrorized by some of the Xeon monsters. Um, the, The dad of the family, the patriarch of that family of gyms, uh, is named Henson. So that's the Jim Henson family. <laughs> uh, okay, I love that. The Pegasus class ship just becomes a Pegasus and Amuro and Sela Pegasus knights. It does seem significant that they keyed Sela to Amuro. Yes. And she's kind of... um. Pegasus Knight is good. Makes me think of Fire Emblem and the Pegasus Riding Knights who were almost always women. But she, when I initially saw her design, I thought like Valkyrie. Mm-hmm. Valkyrie Sela, Knight Amaro, Warrior Gun Cannon. Except that Amaro and Sela's helmets are almost identical. They both have the feathery wing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. coming off of both sides of the helmet. Hey, uh, Gundam fans with some knowledge of the future, look at Amaro's helmet and tell me what you think it looks like. I'm glad you brought up Fire Emblem, actually, because one of the things that I thought about a lot watching this episode was what kinds of cultural influences from other properties might have crept in mm-hmm. or, or be explicit references. And there's a line where a dom with an axe says, I'm no match for projectiles, which I... Which I assume is a reference to game mechanics where you know, different kinds of enemies who wield different kinds of weapons have various weaknesses. In Fire Emblem, the classic triangle is spears, swords, and axes, and each is strong against one and weak against one. Uh, I'm sure it's even older than Fire Emblem. I mean, it's, it's rock, paper, scissors, right? 
There's definitely some early Dungeons and Dragons in there, particularly when the gym sniper shows up and is a wood elf. It's like class in the way that others are the warrior or the knight. It's class as elf, which was a class back in uh, old school Dungeons and Dragons. The slime monsters. I have no idea what piece of media first introduced slime monsters. <laughs> well, they're a Dragon Quest classic. I don't know if they originated there. These slime monsters, by the way, are the fantasy version of the Adzam, though they don't look much like it. They are officially called like Adzam slimes. Huh, okay. I did want to ask if you knew what the Giradoga was supposed to be. It's a skeleton? Okay. Because I noticed when their heads are cut off, the rest of them falls to pieces. Mm -hmm. Okay, skeleton makes sense. Except I wondered if they weren't supposed to be some other kind of creature because they're clinging to the ceiling and they drop down and they're holding the two daggers. And they attack really quickly. No, it's like a, a skeleton rogue okay. kind of thing. That's the nice thing about a skeleton being basically a person. It can be any class. And towards the end of the episode, we even get a first Gundam reference when our Gundam knight points the magical sword straight upwards and magical energies shoot out of it into the clouds. That is extremely last shooting. Mm. Well, so I thought that was interesting. Um, they do two transformation sequences right. for the knight Gundam. The second time, and only the second time, there is a shot of the Night Gundam superimposed in front of a colony, which is a weird visual to include in this knights and fantasy sword and sorcery setting. And the decision to include it in that context where the Night Gundam is receiving from the heavens these sacred artifacts makes me wonder if there's like a low-key... All of this is happening down on the planet and the, like there are colonies up there and there's some sort of lost ancient civilization that all of these mobile suit people are living in the ruins of. This is, in fact, a Dragon Riders of Pern style universe where you think it's a fantasy setting and then you discover as the story <laughs> continues that actually it's science fiction. This is all like a post-apocalyptic society. They used to have space travel and all of this science. <laughs> and then something horrible happened, <laughs> and now they live in a basically medieval society. I did wonder, even the last shooting pose, it's very iconic from Gundam 1979, but that pose of holding a sword straight up into the air, even with like magic shooting out of it, feels like a staple of sword and sorcery oh, artwork yeah. and book covers. I have the power. Right. Although He-Man is after first Gundam. So. Indeed. But the idea of it, of course, you know, power from the heavens is, is much older. I also noted that the, it's not a throne room, but the like central chamber of the citadel of this castle that they're invading, where Night Gundam and Actually, hang on. Should we be saying Satan Gundam or Satan Gundam? I was just going to say Satan Gundam. That's or, fair. Or Baddie Gundam. <laughs> it does It does seem like it's supposed to be Satan, even if they pronounce it Satan. Demon King. Mao Satan Gundam. Speaking of pronunciations, there's a decent chance that La Croix is supposed to be La Croix. It might very well be. But anyway, 
When Night Gundam comes face to face with Satan Gundam for the first time in the central chamber of this castle, the chamber itself is very like, I don't know, the surfaces are rounded in ways that don't feel properly medieval, and it has a sort of ancient technology flavor. You know, as I was watching the episode, I was thinking about how much I liked the design of the castle. It feels almost Escher-y. And this weird angles of towers and and things feel a bit off kilter and don't entirely make sense. But if you imagine it as a downed colony or piece of colony, Mm. then suddenly all of these old structures that look odd in this current placement but would be totally fine in space. It's like, (laughs) oh, hmm. Mm, Hmm. (laughs) Interesting. In terms of other media that may have influenced this uh, particular episode, there was also a plant monster in the sequence that shows the monsters attacking the town that looked straight out of Mario. Hmm, could be. Yeah, that's one of the few that I couldn't peg to a discernible Gundam influence. It's just a nasty-looking monster plant. I'm pretty sure that's from Mario. Well, that would make sense. I mean, this is definitely explicitly based on popular video games of the time, mostly role-playing games, like Gundam Densetsu was, but also Mario, I guess. And while I lack the vocabulary to explain exactly what it is that makes video game music sound like video game music, (laughs) most of the music in this episode sounded like video game music. Uh, There were a few sections where they, it's obviously a pipe organ, which is a very popular choice for fantasy settings because it kind of calls to mind like chanting monks and is a bit spooky and a bit solemn. But there are other sequences where they're not using the organ, where it still has that video game feel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This series also looks as if it's going to fall somewhere in between the extremely limited animation of some of the ones we've seen and the higher quality, uh, higher production value animation that we've seen in others. A lot of the fight sequences were very nicely animated, but then you also have the sequence that's sort of flashing back to the attack on the town, which is really just still frames being zoomed in and out of or panned across. That's also one of the ones where they drop a bunch of uh, fan service shots of characters from Gundam series. Beecha is in there. Mirai, Hathaway, and Shaman are in there. Tem Ray <laughs> <laughs> is in there. And of course, the king is modeled on General Revel. And I like that they have so faithfully replicated the ambiguity of Shar's character. Is he a friend? Is he an enemy? Is he both? This man of dangerous mystery who at different points says he wants to rule the world, be the hero of the world, and find his sister. I also appreciate that he's like very dramatically, you know, turning away from Sela. You must hate me for what I've done. And she's like, no, not really. (laughs) You were looking for me. It's cool. And he's like, I'm terrible and I'm going to disappear now. No, no, I'm sure you hate me. I'm loathsome and reprehensible. Now that I've found you, I have to move on to some other thing. No, wait, could we reconnect? Maybe spend some... I must go. (laughs) The story beats are classic in their way also. The prophecy, the hero who doesn't remember his past, that the group keeps splitting up and then reuniting. 
The villain is defeated, only they aren't, and they returned more powerful than ever. This wasn't even my final form. I mean, it's, it's very by the numbers. Like, it's not a particularly creative or engaging story, but it's fine. It's very much what it is. I'm thinking deeply about the SD we've watched so far because I think this one might be the most based in nostalgia. I'm not sure of the exact ages of the creators, but this came out in the early 90s. A lot of what it's referencing is from the mid to early 80s. It feels very nostalgic to me as someone who was a child in the 90s. I think, honestly, a lot of its references are more current to its release than mm. you imagine. Okay, that, that may be so. I think it's because of our own ages and the points at which we came into contact with a lot of this kind of media, we tend to think it's older than it is. But the early NES Famicom RPGs that this is riffing off of really did just come out within a couple of years before this short. One thing we absolutely have to talk about is um, I, I want to preface this by saying I don't think this was the intention. I really think this was inadvertent. But viewed as a whole, based on what's there in the episode, this is pretty anti-Semitic. Because Satan Gundam has a big old Star of David right on his chest, right where he gets stabbed by the Night Gundam. And to make matters worse, King Revel, who sends Night Gundam out on this quest, has got a Globus Cruciger on his hat, which is the orb that represents the world, surmounted by the cross that represents Christianity and Christian dominion over said world. And so, based on the visuals, this is the story of a Christian king sending his Christian knight out to slay the wicked Jewish sorcerer. And the demon thing, like... That was a whole deal in the Middle Ages as part of that era's anti-Semitism in Europe were all these rumors that Jewish people had horns and tails and were basically demons. Uh, so yeah, putting a Star of David on your demon king. Yeah. Uh, and it's even worse in the Gunpla because the Satan Gundam Gunpla from this era, that star of david is just a big old gold star on its chest and like it's not as if japan did not have anti-semitism in fact in the mid 80s japan had a rash of anti-semitism so severe that it was commented upon by people all over the world including in the u.s it was bad now there are innocent explanations for this the six-pointed hexagon that we think of as the Star of David does have other associations. It has associations with the occult, the Seal of Solomon, and stuff like that. So I earnestly think that they were just playing around with visual symbolism from another culture that they didn't fully understand and accidentally made a very anti-Semitic work. And potentially they were looking to influences and sources from outside Japan that were anti-Semitic and they weren't necessarily aware of the stereotypes involved and thus repeated them. Absolutely. But even acknowledging that I really, truly do not think they intended this, this came out in 1990. You can't pretend to not know what the 
Star of David is. It's one of the most recognizable symbols in the world. It's on the Israeli flag. And it's not like that's the only thing in the episode that references Christianity. The guy is called Satan Gundam. Any anime fan will be familiar with, I'm going to call it the oddities of how Christianity is portrayed in Japanese media. Not dissimilar to how a lot of minority religions get portrayed in media from countries where they're not very prevalent. You know, it's, it's for the vibes. It's crosses for the vibes. But they're no less responsible for that being like offensive or stereotypical when they depict other religions than anybody would be mucking around portraying religions that they don't really know about. Yeah, this is a classic the author is dead situation where whatever they intended, we can see what they made. And I think this is probably one of the big reasons why these SD shorts don't get a broader release. They only ever get like limited releases in Japan, never translated for the West. Um, and the fact that basically every episode we've covered has got something in it, some kind of problem, is I think a, a big reason why that hasn't happened. This one is particularly interesting because they have made more modern releases of the Satan Gundam, for instance, in Gunpla form, and its chest has been changed. Did they put the like pentagram on it instead or? Um, the versions I've seen, it's still like a six pointed star, but it's been changed. So it's clearly not the Star of David anymore. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, that was the thing that sort of clinched it for me. There are a lot of ways to depict a six pointed star that aren't a Star of David. And that's the one they landed on. Yeah. And look, you find this a lot in anime. A bit of a digression here, but as I was looking into this a little bit, I discovered that the manga publisher Jump has a sort of a development program for junior artists, especially webcomic artists who are sort of getting into the manga field. Uh, but it seems as though Jump has a policy of not publishing any manga that has the Star of David or a, a six-pointed star that could be the Star of David in it at all, no matter what. And so I found some forum threads from a bunch of artists who are in these programs talking about this issue and about having their comics rejected by Jump, probably because of the inclusion of the Star of David, and that if they removed it and replaced it with something else, then they would be A-OK -okay to go on. And part of what this brought up is just like how prevalent this imagery is in anime and manga. It also reminds me of... I cannot for the life of me remember when or how we were talking about this, but a discussion we had about racist depictions of black people in anime and manga and that certain studios effectively decided that rather than grappling with that racism and dealing with how to make better depictions, they just you know, brushed their hands and said, well, no more black people in any of our stories. That will prevent this being a lightning rod. And the, the blanket prohibition against depicting the Star of David feels very much like, well, anything about Judaism feels like a hot-button issue to us, so we're just not going to talk about it at all, ever. Yeah, this, uh, this, this came up actually in a Gundam context because Ryu Jose, who right. in first Gundam, his ethnicity is kind of ambiguous. Certainly he seems more black in some scenes than others, but apparently... The original plan was for him to be unambiguously black. 
but the TV studios are uncomfortable with black characters in anime because they're worried that the depictions will be racist and that they will get complaints. And so as Nina just laid out, the response to that was not, let's make sure that we do like good depictions of black people. It was, let's just not depict black people at all, which is not a solution. I don't know that I need to say that, but it's not. There are obviously always going to be pitfalls when someone is writing and depicting characters who share very different background and identity from themselves. And people should be, you know, conscientious and judicious about how they do that. But studios making these sort of blanket prohibitions just goes to show what they're worried about is bad press, not about the actual ethics of their behavior. Yeah, I can think of some serious ethical issues that Jump clearly does not care about. And the less said about that, the better. And now Tom's research on the origins of SD Gundam Gaiden. At the outset, I mentioned that Night Gundam and the SD Gundam Gaiden world of sword and sorcery was one of several tenuously connected SD projects that all launched around the same time. To explore that a bit more, let us now dig into the origins of SD Gundam Gaiden. In 1988, Bandai had a problem. It had been three years since they launched their first SD Gundam Gashapon toys, and the series had proved to be astoundingly popular. SD Gundam was, by many accounts, far more popular than actual original Gundam. Many of the kids pumping 100 yen coins into Bandai's capsule slot machines had never even seen Gundam, but they loved the chibi-fied mobile suits. The demand was insatiable. And Bandai has been churning out new SD toys at a remarkable rate in order to keep pace. Now, they were running out of content. There just weren't enough mobile suits. Even after dipping into deep obscura like the prototype Jim Cannon and crossing over with other mecha shows like Dragonar, Elgheim, and Dunbine. What was worse, their competitor, Takara, was muscling in on their turf. Takara had just put out a new SD-styled mecha model kit based on the hit Sunrise mecha anime Mashin Hiro Wataru. Mashin Hiro Wataru was solidly aimed at younger kids, the main character is 9, and the show relies heavily on high-energy visual gags, and like Gundam Densetsu from a few weeks back, the world building was thoroughly influenced by the role-playing games that were so popular at the time. Plus, the new Takara kit was so easy to build that it was being sold in toy stores instead of model shops. You just snipped the parts off the runner and assembled them, no glue required. That's de rigueur for us now, but even Bandai had only just started doing it the prior year. Incidentally, I had not realized until doing this research piece that up until 1989, Takara was using a very racist caricature of a black child as their company logo, so be on guard for that if you do go looking for pictures of the old Mashin Hiro Wataru kits. Anyway, Bandai had faced a similar problem back in the early 80s, when the first Gundam well ran dry and Macross kits from competitors like Ari and Imai were eating away at their market share. 
Back then, Bandai had orchestrated the creation of the Mobile Suit Variations design series in order to give them something new to sell, and in 1988 they revisited that strategy with the creation of SD Variations, or STV. The project was overseen by the illustrator Yokoi Koji, who is sometimes called the father of SD Gundam for his outsized role in the early development of the aesthetic. I talked more about him and his role back in episode 4.1. The new designs for SDV were published in the magazine Comic Bonbon, the same one that had serialized Plamo Kyoshiro and many of the SD Gundam comics that preceded the OVAs. The initial lineup of SDV characters included plenty of names that will be familiar to the more hardcore Gundam fan today. The Chivalrous Knight Gundam, the Stealthy Ninja Gundam, the heavily armed Tactical Command Gundam, the adorable Nisei or Fake Gundam, and the heavily armed Tactical but Aquatic Gundiver. Although confusingly, this Gundiver is a completely different design from the more recent SD Gundiver, which comes up if you search that name in English. But anyway. <laughs> These characters were then spun off and given their own stories, which were eventually established to all transpire at different times and in different regions within the same larger world, known as Sadrak. More on the name in a minute. The Musha Gundam SD Sengokuden series predated SDV, but it too would be retconned as another region within Sadrak. Oh, and the Ninja Gundam from SDV was redubbed Hyakimaru. You've already met him. The Night Gundam Gaiden spin-off proved especially popular. Largely inspired by RPGs, it got its own series of role-playing games for the Famicom, starting with SD Gundam Gaiden Naito Gundam Monogatari, simply SD Gundam Gaiden Night Gundam's story, which was played, according to Bandai, by 3 million people. That doesn't necessarily mean 3 million units sold, this is press release language we're talking about here, but it must have sold well enough because they did make two sequels. Now, to return to the name of the world, Sadrak. Much of the work of developing and promoting these new SDV characters was done in Bandai's then brand new product line, Cardass. Launched in 1988, Cardass spelled C-A-R-D-D-A-S-S, -S, is basically a series of collectible trading card games sold via Gashapon machine. You put in your 20 or 100 yen, and you get a random set of cards with character art and information on them. Most can then be used to build a deck and play an associated game against other collectors. You might, for example, be familiar with the new Digimon card game that launched in 2020. That is a Cardass product, although the Cardass brand name does not appear on the English versions of the cards. <laughs> if you read Cardass backwards, you get Sadrak. The name, according to Bandai, was inspired by Japan's Automated Meteorological Data Acquisition System, aka Amedas. Amedas provides Japan with information about the weather, and Cardass would provide consumers with information about characters from Bandai's stable of popular brands. Important information like, how many hit points does Night Gundam have? The answer, by the way, is 500, compared to Knight Amaro's measly 250, but a far cry short of Satan Gundam's impressive 1200. 
Even the upgraded version of Night Gundam with the three holy relics equipped only has 800 HP, but I guess being a hero means overcoming stronger opponents. Of course, there were also Cardass cards with SD representations of all the regular mobile suits from Gundam as well. In fact, you may recall that during episode 6.2, Adventures in SD Land, we talked a bit about how every time an enemy appears to block the hero's passage, its name appears in the upper left of the screen and its HP is displayed in the lower right. At the time, we speculated that this was one of many references to the role-playing video games that inspired the short. But as it turns out, those scenes were actually near-exact recreations of the Cardass cards for the corresponding mobile suits, with even the HP matching that listed on the card. The horde of six Zaku stood out especially. They're arranged into two staggered ranks, and they have their heat hawks raised in an exact recreation of a Cardass card published the previous year. Cardass isn't just a vehicle for delivering SD Gundam facts. The series started with Saint Seiya cards, while Dragon Ball and Sailor Moon cards proved huge hits. To give you a sense of scale, between 1988 and 1991, eager customers reportedly purchased some 1.4 billion Cardass cards. This next bit gets a bit outside of our time window, but just for fun, in 2007, Bandai created a Cardass spin-off called Data Cardass that allowed players to use the physical cards they collected in specific arcade games. The first such arcade game Cardass hybrid in the Data Cardass product line was Hyakuju Taisen Animaru Kaiza, Beast War Animal Kaiser. The players create a three-card deck consisting of an animal, a modifier, and a special skill. Then they scan those cards at the arcade machine and battle each other in electrifying matchups like Tarantula versus Orca, or Axolotl versus a shark that is a robot with built-in machine guns. <laughs> this was made by the same team at Bandai Namco that developed Tekken, and it proved popular enough to get a sequel in 2012 that is still operating today. Now, if any of you in the audience heard me talking about a game where you have to buy Bondi products and scan them into an also made by Bondi arcade machine so that you can battle your friends' Bondi products, and you're now thinking, hmm, well, keep it to yourself. No spoilers. Next time on episode 6.8. Attack on Titan. We research and discuss SD Gundam Gaiden Episode 2 and Catboy Shar. What's wrong with your face? Sick riffs. I would have called them hot licks. It may sound primitive and unscientific, but through the fairies, we could ask the Bow of Light for help. Pet Ball. Outlook unclear. Try again later. Sandstorm by Darude. How many times have we made that joke? Not enough. Master Grade Giant. Gonna tell my kids this was Neon Genesis Evangelion. Peak character design is when there's a giant robot and a tiny fairy and they're buddies. And in the first stage, the boss is vulnerable to sleep and fire attacks. In the second stage, 
kind words, friendship, and projectiles. This served no purpose, but nevertheless, Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Nina and Tom, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is Olivia by Hyson. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. I don't know, Nina, is it ever going to be safe to share wrong Gundam opinions with the world again? I mean, wrong opinions like... SD Satan Gundam necessarily implies the existence of SD Paradise Lost, along with a whole host of SD Celestial Beings. When are we going to meet them? If people don't share wrong Gundam opinions like that, they'll just keep building up inside until something terrible happens. I don't think that's an official spinoff. Oh, no? I don't think so. An image which shows four pictures. The first one is a s'more. The second one is a zagok. The third one is... This is a zagok between two graham crackers. (laughs) There's also chocolate in there. I had to work hard to get that chocolate. Let us continue the conversation on the assumption that what you just said is going to get cut. Okay. Tomato, tomato. (laughs) It seems petty of me to criticize SD Gundam for continuity errors, so I won't. But they are in there. This is the story of a Christian king sending his Christian knight out to slay noisy people on the sidewalk. Shopping trolleys. (laughs) Is that where we'll end? (laughs) Right? Yep. This is what anime would do. Anime people. Anime folks. Anime Twitter. Ugh anime Twitter. Ironically, despite this being a significantly longer episode, we had less to say about it. Mm-hmm.